Hello and welcome. On this week's show, we have Adil Ghani, who became a motivational speaker at the age of 14, engaging crowds of thousands with his humour and positive message. Adil has limb girdle muscular dystrophy, but this hasn't stopped him from offering guidance and helping countless people across the country overcome challenges and reassess their capabilities. He is passionate about changing people's perceptions of disability and brings this energy to the work he does at The Ability People. The Ability People empowers people with disabilities by helping companies enhance processes and adapt cultures, transforming professional lives and building better brands. Hi there, Adil. How are you today? Good, good. Yourself? Yeah, good, thank you. It's great to have you on the show. Actually, um, I saw you speaking with Ashanti um, on the panel at Event Lab and just thought, yeah, he's a cool guy. We need to get him on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he's straight talking. He's got lots of interesting things to say. I think it'd be a really interesting conversation. <laughs> no, no, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, brilliant. And I think definitely for me, Adol, it was, there were so many things that you said there that I think were insightful. Um, And this is why it's so important to have the voices at the table, right? And there was one thing in particular that you said, which was um, asking an individual what they need. You know, when you were talking about the fact that not everybody may want a promotion, for example, you know, ask them, what do they want from their job Mm. instead of making assumptions about what that might be? Exactly, exactly. And I think the the thing to, um, I think a lot of things, right, there's stigma attached to a lot of things. I think particularly with the promotion pieces, you know, if someone's been in their job for, you know, even I would argue even five plus years in today's climate, we start thinking, well, why haven't they been promoted? What, what What's going on? If they haven't applied for promotions, what's management thinking about that particular individual? You know, are they thinking this individual lacks ambition, X, Y, Z, when, you know, when it's time to uh, maybe in today's climate as well, what with coronavirus, a lot of people have been um, sort of laid off or or furloughed right and I think when it comes to making those decisions um all of that stigma and everything is sort of attached to that so it's 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 a tough one um but I think people need to recognize that you know if somebody's in their job they're happy doing their job and they're meeting the deadlines right that they need to be and they're performing well and you know if they don't want a promotion that's fine some people don't Right, want to stay in the same job line for thirty, forty years. I mean, particularly, um, again, not not generalizing and painting everyone with the same brush, but particularly when it comes to neurodiversity, um, you know, sometimes that can be the case that somebody with, for example, autism or um, other kinds of neurodiversity might find change very hard. So then, the idea of going up for a promotion is it's difficult and it it won't, yeah, it's not saying that that person won't necessarily get there, but they, they're going to take their time to get there, right? And so you've got to give them their time. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Adil. So yeah. can you just explain to us what neurodiversity is? Because I think this is a term we're seeing used far more often yeah. online, especially on LinkedIn. Maybe if you are now kind of following individuals who are in the diversity and inclusion space, you might be seeing that term come up more often. Mm. Um, Would you mind just sharing with us really what that might encompass? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So neurodiversity, um, basically, um, the word itself. So um, the word neuro relates to the brain, right? So neurons. And then diversity is difference, essentially. So neurodiversity is um, differences in in the brain and the way the brain functions. Now, often when we think of neurodiversity, as I think with any disability or impairment, we tend to go to the extreme. So people might be thinking things like autism, um, Down syndrome, uh, yeah, and they are all encompassed within that neurodiverse sphere. But so are things like uh, dyslexia, right. right? Dyspraxia, dyscalculia, um, many different sort of uh, disabilities and impairments. But they relate particularly to to the brain. And how the how the brain works um, and functions, and often um, it can be, um, yeah. For example, dyslexia, right? I think we we tend to think right. There's lots of tools and coping mechanisms for people out there, and there are. But sometimes you can have some forms of dyslexia which are quite extreme, and people can find it even hard to concentrate in meetings. So I think. Yeah, I mean, that's what uh, neurodiversity is. Um, I think if we're going to, you know, I think we're, we're, we're all in a sense neurodiverse because everyone thinks differently, right? And everyone has different um, ways where they work better. For example, I don't start my working day before midday, right? Because I just work better. But then I can go on till midnight. Like, um, you know, so I think... It's one of those things um, where we all kind of have a little bit of it, um, yeah. but often we we can sort of mask it or or um, you know we're able to to control it. And I think with in some cases um, people people can't help it, kind of thing. It's kind of like asking me to to walk up a flight of stairs, right? Uh, it's not going to happen. Doesn't matter how long you're going to wait there or what adjustments you're going to make, it's not going to happen. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. You're totally right as well, though, just with obviously the way that all of our, our brains work and the, and the different ways that we kind of learn um, and engage with things. So I'm, I'm very much a visual learner and a doer. I can't remember what the, I know it's visual and I can't remember what doer is aesthetic maybe so if I do something I learn it a lot quicker than if somebody say was to give me a book or um, a, a, some sort of brochure or something like that to tell me how something works that I have to try and follow instructions that way I need to physically do something or I need to see it physically being done for it to kind of go in and for me to learn and mm-hmm. um, so that's very true everybody has different ways and experiences of learning and we don't think about that a lot in in the workplace everyone has a set ways of um I guess saying right this is your training this is how it's done without considering the different way mm-hmm. that people kind of formulate uh, ideas and information I think the other thing is as well one thing we we've come across is particularly with neurodiversity and with um autism or Asperger's is so often what can happen is, let's say if you go into a big company and you're working in one particular department, right, with maybe 15 or 20 people and your job is a very particular job. When you go into to that department, they'll tell you about your job, right, and then you're sort of expected to kind of do it. And we had a case where um similar thing happened. Someone went into a very large 
you know, international, multinational corporation. Um, but there, where they were working was, um, a, relatively was a very small department and a very particular piece of work, right? Data analysis. But for this individual to be able to do his job, it wasn't just explaining the, the day to day, but it was, it was sort of explaining to them how they fit in with the rest of the organization. So once they, so basically we were telling him where the information he uses come from, comes from. And then when he's done his particular piece of work that he has to do with that information, where it goes on to and how it's used. Mm. Right. And that helped the individual to basically visualize and, um, you know, sort of work out where he fitted into this big machine, so to speak. So I think that's important as well. Is, and I think these are things which, you know, the key thing to mention is these are things which we should be doing anyway, regardless of whether someone is neurodiverse or not. Mm. In my eyes, these are what, what we, what we call good practice or best practice, right? It's going to benefit everyone. Um, mm. not just those. So, you know, if you fit in these sorts of, and these are those very simple adjustments, right? That you can fit in for everyone. Right, so tell everyone about where their department fits in, where the information comes from, where it goes once they're done, and you form a more cohesive, um, yeah, company or, or working department. I think. Mm. Can I just ask as well, Adil? Because I mean, I think this is a real challenge. And uh, you know, I've been an employer before, and I've been a colleague, an employee before. How can an employer tactfully? collect this information when they're hiring does that make sense because yeah, yeah. not all of these not all of these needs will necessarily be evident and i also suspect that not all individuals will declare them almost yeah, in yeah. the initial stages for various reasons so how can employ how can an employer tactfully respectfully and legally understand or identify that understand which of these mm. might be relevant to someone that they're hiring yeah yeah so um firstly i think let's talk about the the ideal right because that's what i think we should all strive towards right and in an ideal situation your recruitment processes that includes your interviewing your uh, psychometric testing your onboarding as well right those that whole process would be robust enough that people wouldn't need to disclose, right? So that, so just to illustrate that, let's take the interview, for example. If I was going into interview, right, I, I use a wheelchair full time, I can't walk. So if all the interview rooms were on the ground floor or was accessible by list, there'd be no need for me to disclose that I'm a wheelchair user, right? Right. Right. So, what 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 we're trying to get towards that, and obviously getting there is tough. And quite often with physical disabilities, it's a lot easier, right? Because you see the wheelchair, it's very obvious what I need. Um, with neurodiversity, um, it's a it's a lot tougher, right? So where the, what what needs to happen is this idea, firstly that. Um, we need to move away from this thinking of if you have a disability, you should disclose. Right. Like, okay. No, you shouldn't. 
it's down to the individual who's applying how comfortable they feel. We work with people who feel very comfortable first step they want to. We've had people who throughout the whole process they don't want to mention it. And I think that's open to the person experiencing your process. Mm. But what I think we need to do is be very upfront about what our process includes. So often you, you see people, right, process, first stage is application, then we'll send you an email about the next stage. Well, why not on your website have, you know, that you'll do an application, then you'll do psychometric testing, what that testing is about, what is there to identify, then what the interview is there, how will that interview be carried out, right? What kinds of questions will be asked, mm. right? Is it a skill-based, right, competency-based interview, or is it more of a casual conversation, right? Mm. What does that look like? And I think be open with your process so that people, when they're coming in, they either feel confident enough not to feel the need to disclose, or if they do, then they do so at the right stage and give them that opportunity at every stage. So, for example, at the application process, I think the opportunity to disclose should be given, right? But it shouldn't be expected. So it shouldn't be like if somebody hasn't disclosed on stage one, but they disclose on stage three, you're asking, why didn't you disclose at stage one? That question shouldn't be asked. Right. They disclose that stage three, that's what they feel comfortable with. And in some cases... Um, so for example with the neurodiversity we had a case where um, very large company right and the fortunate thing in this situation was because we were working with that individual right and the company as well around DNI and this whole disclosure thing and, and everything we we were able to say to the company at the right stage that right this person as autism because I knew the psychrometric testing that they were going to use was not robust enough. It had hypothetical questions in it where you had to use um, sort of imagination and someone with autism um, can find that quite hard, mm-hmm. right? And it's quite, um, again, going back to the example, it's like asking me to walk up a flight of stairs, right? It's not going to happen. So then we looked at taking those questions out of the psychrometric testing just to make it an equitable experience, right? So in that instance, we needed to disclose at that stage because if we hadn't, the person would have been at a significant disadvantage. Now, it's very easy for me to identify this as an outside consultant, but if you're on your own going into a process, right, it can be tough to identify when to. But if companies are open... I think people will, and I think it benefits everyone. Um, the other thing I would say is try and choose suppliers that are aware of uh, aware of um, diversity and inclusion. So, for example, there's loads of different suppliers for psychometric testing. Ask your supplier, what happens if someone with autism comes into my application process? What what adjustments can you make in that instance? And if they're saying, oh, we'll give them extra time, right, and that's the only adjustment we can make, um, that's not good enough because extra time has been around for 20, 30-plus years, right? I, I was using it all throughout education. So if that's the best they can come up with, sorry, not good enough for me. <laughs> what, what, what I want to be hearing from them is, 
Right, okay, so we know that individuals with autism find hypothetical questions tough. So none of our psychometric testing for any individuals includes hypothetical questions, right? I would also want to be hearing from those suppliers about, you know, instead of using psychometric testing about what would your manager do if X, Y, Z, what would you do if this happened or that happened, make it a skill-based process, right? So actually, what is the job, right? And give them a, a task to do that relates to the job directly, yeah. right? So if it's data analysis, give them a piece of data analysis to do. Don't ask them, what would you do on Wednesday if you're running late on a project and your manager came to you? Because those kinds of issues, right, are discussed and worked out together, right? Your manager doesn't go, right, John, we're running late. What do you think we should do on the spot, John, right? They go, John, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? John then replies, yeah, I could get that done potentially. What about this, though? You know, and you have a discussion. It's never... So, so those psychometric testing, you can tell I have a lot of issues with them. Anyway. <laughs> but I think skill-based stuff is, is important. And we, yeah. yeah, that's one of the adjustments we made to one, with one of our clients was they have that psychometric testing and, um, they were, uh, quite reluctant to get rid of it, right? Because it was a graduate scheme. So they, yeah, they wanted some way of measuring, right? But then what we said, okay, you don't want to get rid of it, keep it, but put in a skill-based situation, uh, a skill-based thing. So now they've got a coding test where they give their applicants um, sort of uh, problems and then they have to uh, solve these uh, problems in the coding, right? So they have to have good knowledge and that relates directly into the job that they go on to do. Right. This IT graduate scheme is quite technical. But the good thing that meant for us was, let's say, somebody with autism who doesn't perform very well on the psychometric testing, right, when it comes to the practical test of the coding, right, if they're capable, they'll score highly. Yeah. So then what you can do is you can sort of make a value-based judgment kind of thing, right, about what you want. Again, you always want a good mix of people. Um, but yeah, that that's really interesting, and, and actually, as you mentioned, psychometric, I did think of graduate schemes mm. <laughs> because uh, they are the bane, I think, of most people's lives. Yeah. There's like a very small percentage of people who actually survive and thrive graduate schemes. Let's be really honest, mm. um, because of all of those unnecessary, in my view, layers. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. to get what is actually an entry level very basic job as you say so yeah. just like get over yourself but anyway um that was really really interesting yeah i'm gonna just jump back a little bit because one of those points that really simple point that um i was like yeah definitely to- totally makes sense was about um organizations being upfront about the interview process and mm. what, yeah, the candidate is going to be expected to do through every step of the process. Mm. And then it gives you that opportunity to say, well, actually, um, I think I could demonstrate better um, my skill set around this by by delivering it in this way. And you can kind of almost preempt it in a way. Mm. Um, I don't know. I just found that quite interesting. I mean, I mean what, what gets me is companies don't want to be upfront about their process because they say, well, 
people will have advantages. But if you're upfront with whoever's applying, you level the playing field, right? So yeah. what's the problem with saying our interview will be 40 minutes, right? And we will be asking competency-based questions. What's wrong with saying the slight commentary right before the application button, right? Because the other thing is when you lay out your process like that, you're only also going to get people who really want the job applying. If you know, you know, there's this syndrome. I think nowadays where online is, it's kind of like you, you, you can be one person and put your application in for a hundred different jobs, right? And you go right wherever I get, but you always speak to people and they always say, uh, yeah, really, I only want these three or four, but I'm applying to get practice and stuff like that. If you're upfront about your process, I think people will be um, a lot more comfortable with applying to the jobs they really want and putting that energy in there, right? Because they know what that process involves now. Um, that's one thing that we try and get all our, um, you know, clients to to do is basically be as upfront as possible. So we're not saying give away the questions you're necessarily going to ask at interview, mm. but tell them how long it will last, how mm. many people will be on the panel, mm. right? The, the kinds of questions, right? So I think it's skill-based, is it more of a casual conversation? The assessment, and also with these, particularly with graduate schemes, tell them about the past mark of these assessments, mm. right? That you need to score 70% or better to to get through, right? Tell them um, how long they'll have, right? Tell them the the kinds of things they could be doing to practice. At the end of the day, you you know, as a company, it benefits you if the society your company is in has people that are intelligent and hardworking and want a success because one day they might come around and be an employee in your company. So I think offering advice to individuals as well about try this before you go down the application route, you know, practice this, do this, do that. I think, you know, we need to move away from this idea of, um, you know, oh, like, you know, we're, we're, we're X, Y, Z. And, you know, if we share all our secrets, then mm. the company down the road will know all our secrets as well. Yeah. Is, in reality, that's already happening. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you look at biscuit companies or people who manufacture chocolate, they all know the kinds of techniques each other are using because mm. they're in the industry. But it's all hush hush. No, don't mention it. Don't mention it. Mm. And, but everyone knows, right? It's just <laughs> your open book a little bit, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think as well. Some sometimes organisations put out um, a job ad. Um, but they don't even really know what or who they're looking for. It's like they're kind of just hoping the right person's going to come along and tell them what their business needs. So sometimes I feel like a little bit of laziness kind of comes into that as well. And expecting a lot from the candidate to basically tell them what they should be doing and giving them ideas. I think sometimes that comes into play and, mm. you know, isn't great. No, true, true. Mm. I think also, I think it's it's one of those things, isn't it, you know, We've certainly seen over the last month, six weeks, this kind of air of it being a case of COVID versus diversity, you know, with everything that's happening around the world. Should we do we have time to really care and do anything about diversity when 
you know, to put it quite crudely, there's bigger things at hand. We've seen this kind of attitude emerging and very subtly in some places. And I think that this kind of inclusion, which is one of the reasons why we definitely wanted to have this chat on the podcast, Mm. I think this is one of the strands of diversity and inclusion that gets missed very often. Mm. And the thing is, I think with the the whole disability so I think at the moment what's happening is small to medium sized businesses are because you're lim- you're limited in your resource right mm-hmm. in terms of where you're going to spend and at the moment um you know if we look honestly covid is the thing right that is on everyone's mind right and diversity whilst we don't want it to be put on the back burner you know if companies got x amount of resources you know, and, and they having to put a certain amount in it, it will go on the back burner for maybe a year or two. But it, one thing that's important is that those companies realize that once we know how we're dealing with COVID on a day to day and mm. what's happening, right, then we can move back to the focuses we had before because we've dealt with it, right? Mm. Um, the second thing I'd say is the larger organizations, some of, one of our clients, right, is is massive, um, and they actually have done the opposite. So they're just about to launch a new program internally, right, around DNI, and it's basically we're we're in the planning stage and they'll be kicking off in December January time. Now they're able to do that because they've got a huge amount of resource available to them. Yeah. Right. And so they they'll do that. I think with regard to the disability and inclusion, I think um I mean this is my feeling, right, is that um when we look at uh BAME, right, and you look at women as well, for the last I'd argue twenty, thirty years, yeah, um, particularly the the women uh debate about women in the workplace and this sort of thing has had a lot of limelight and so has BAME, right? And it's because these are, and I, I can understand why that is because they're, they're easier to understand, right? They're easier to deal with and a large amount of the population can relate to those issues, right? I think with disability, um, firstly, I think, you know, there's not a large amount of people that can relate number one, right? Number two, I think that if we look at the psychology of disability within society, I mean, things like children in need, it's great, right? I think it's fantastic they do it. But that's what people think of when they think of disability, right? You know, and then stuff like the Paralympics, fantastic, great as well. But then what happens is you get this void, right? You get either people cannot help themselves because they're so severely disabled or you're disabled but you're able to achieve great things, right? You're able to be the 1%, right, and get a gold medal. There's no in-between, right? And the point I'm here and the point we want to make at TAP is that there's a whole in-between. You know, the, the thing to realize is that those... Yes, there are individuals who are so severely disabled that 
the way the world is currently, they will not be able to work. Doesn't matter how many adjustments you make, right? There is that population of people. It's small, but it's there. In the same way, there's those population of elite stars, right? That go to the Paralympics or achieve amazing things, right? Again, very small population, right? It's the 1% kind of thing. But then there's this whole area in between which has sort of been forgotten or not talked about, right? And those are the areas where we're coming with people who, who, who don't want to be Paralympians, but they just want a job. Right? <laughs> they just want a salary. That's all they want. Right? And when you, when you put it like that, like one of the things, so a lot, uh, so our team, um, we've got a lot of ex-Paralympians. Uh, we've got one or two current Paralympians as well. Oh, our, one of our co-founders, Liz Johnson, is an ex-Paralympian, right? And I always joke with Liz. I say that, you know, you, you know, you got a gold medal, right? And because of you, like, people think, you know, everyone with a disability wants to be a sports star and wants to train for X amount of hours a day. And I always say to Liz, for me, your gold medal is, it's inspiring. But what I find more inspiring, Liz, is the fact that for several years of your life, you're training six, seven hours a day, right, for a very niche goal. And to have that mindset to do that, right, number one. Number two, on top of the other challenges you face on a day-to-day, right, is what's more inspiring for me. That's the part that I'm like, wow, like I could never do that, right? And but at the same time, I say, I, I you know, I laugh and joke with. That. I say because of you, the world thinks everyone wants to be a Paralympian, right? <laughs> but I like say to her, all I want is a blue job, right? Kind of thing, um, you know. And and that's where I think we need to sort of have more stories in the middle ground, so society are aware yes. of positive and success stories, right? Which is why the kind of stuff you guys do. Right with this yeah. podcast and other things is important as well because it makes people aware of that gap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's funny how as the as the conversations get more uncomfortable around certain groups of people, that less is done. So you're saying there's a lot of highlight around women, and then kind of like around you know um, minority groups, and then you get down to abilities. It's funny that the more people feel uncomfortable about something, the less they want to do something about yeah. it. Yeah, and um, I, I think the the way the world is at the moment as well. Um, like, I, I understand, like, as much as I get frustrated and things, but I also understand because, you know, in my background as well, so um, I've got muscular dystrophy, right? So I was walking up, I was able to walk up until the age of um, eight, nine, basically. And when I was at that age, not that young people are aware anyway but I think even if I was walking as I was older or if I didn't go to a special needs school I would have not been aware of the world of disability at all in the way that I am now and so I wouldn't have been able to do the job that I'm doing right I think I understand because that part of society is in some ways segregated off still Right, you have special needs schools and then you have mainstream schools. And in some cases, that's what is needed because of the needs of individuals. But I, I would argue that, um, 
you know, there, there needs to be more integration at, at, at early levels mm-hmm. in society. And it's happening now, admittedly, mm-hmm. what my schooling was done between, basically, um, I started my the special needs school in 2003. And wh- when I started, the the back then it was very much, right, you go special needs school or you go mainstream. Mm. There was very little crossover. It was starting to happen. Mm. Now I think things are different. I think you, a lot of mainstream schools have got this, the right support in place now. So young people at an earlier age are being exposed to disability and difference in a positive light, right? They mm. see their school friend in the same class as them, sitting the exam, same exam as them, but crucially is doing some things differently, right? Mm. Right. So I, I was at describing my exam. So they see that. So then what happens when they come into the world of work and they're the hiring manager and they see, right, you know, Alex who wants a job, right, and Alex comes along to the interview room and happens to be in a wheelchair. For that generation, mm. they already are aware of, um, throughout their life of adjustments that can be made. Mm-hmm. I think this is, yeah, I think the other thing is the moment there's a real generational split, right? I'd argue people of my parents' age, um, right, we're talking, you know, uh, early fifties here, right? Ha- have completely different exposure to the world than people who are my age, you know, 24, 25, like it's, yeah. You know, it's, it's, I think there's disparity and I think it's getting much better. And I think with, with the next generation, with my brother's generation, uh, you know, I mean, they're 17, 18, right? In their generation, so many things are happening that are positive, right? By social media and other platforms where they're exposed to mm-hmm. ideas and people who they would never normally be exposed to. Um, yeah, and in my true. in my mind, that can only lead to positive positive that, outcomes. I actually have a personal experience of kind of highlighting and illustrating what you're saying is totally right. I um my mother used to work in a residential home for um, adults with learning and physical disabilities, and she used to work shifts. So I remember having to go with her to work. She'd start at like six a.m. and I'd just go and hang out with the residents, we'd chill, play games, watch TV, or whatever. Um, so it made me very comfortable to be with people around people who are different to me. But we were, we were doing the same things together. They were just a bit different to me. Mm. And the same with my school as well. I must have just been lucky with what schools I went to because this was a good 20, 30 years ago. We would have, um, I hate the term special school, but we would have guys from special school come in and do PE classes, dance classes, sessions with us. So from a young age, again, up the exposure was there. So for me, it, the, there was never any taboo about it, you know, but that, that for some other people my age and the older generations, there is some sort of taboo around that. And I'm so glad it's changing mm, now. I think, I think the, the, it, like in, in that case, I think, you know, you, it's not always possible to get exposure, but I, I also think that something needs to be done about the curriculum, things mm-hmm. brought in. So, like, I, I go into schools, but I have this idea, right? So, I go into schools, right, and I talk about disability and I talk about my life, and I'm very open and honest because I'm comfortable with who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need to be clear here and say not everybody 
is right as well to you know comfortable enough to talk about their disability or impairment um you know because they are at a different stage in their own personal journeys but one thing i said is get people who are comfortable enough to talk about it um and they should make that as part of the curriculum right that you have um this group of speakers right who are willing to go in and 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 talk in an open and honest fashion right to even with those schools that don't have a local uh, special needs school they're able to um sort of you know have have that exposure as well and it's interesting you you say you don't like the word special needs yeah. right <laughs> and it's an interesting thing because when i was younger i never used to like the idea yeah. of special needs and or extra needs or mm. uh, you know this idea of difference and things but now i think it, you know it's those differences that make us a stronger society and whilst the word special needs school again is is uh, still a bit of an old term but it's still in fashion mm. um you know i i think with i think there's a certain element of it's a word right and it's a word where we know what the meaning is mm. right that it's it's a school for individuals with disabilities or that need more support right so mm. special needs school so i personally don't have um any issues with the word anymore i used to when i was younger but i don't know because i know what the meaning encompasses right mm-hmm. um and i think that's another important thing is with words and phrases um i think if you know what the meaning encompasses right and you and you also know a little bit about the historical context as well so for example um the word cripple or spastic yeah mm-hmm. so for example the word cripple right back in historically was used to describe somebody who had problems physically being able to move mm-hmm. right you would say oh that's a cripple right and it was used just like you say oh there goes a, a lady or a woman right it was used in that sense and but the the associated thing with that word is there were hospital schools that were were dedicated in in that time to do and people weren't treated very nicely and that word um you know became an offensive word and it is um but however you contrast that with the word spastic Mm. right now spastic has a similar context Mm. right in that it's used to refer to somebody who um has sort of quite stiff joints right so difficulty moving but it's also a medical term. Yeah. So when they talk about your joints having spasticity, mm-hmm. right, that's what they're referring to. So again, right, here's a word that has been, that was a medical word, right, spasticity, been taken out of its context, right, and being used to describe people who suffer with that, oh, you're a spaz, right? Now, that to me is quite interesting, right? How, how this, these words, kind of have an impact and i'll be honest right as when i'm with my friends who have um we all have disabilities and this is the idea of and people have around this reclaiming of words and things like this and this sort of debate and for me right 
I use those words with my friends, right? When we're laughing and joking with each other, right? But I use them because I know the context I'm using it in. So do they, right? And we're, everyone's comfortable. If at any point one of them turned around to me and said, do you know what? Actually, I'm starting to find that word offensive, right? Mm-hmm. I'd be like, okay, fine. You know, we're not, we're not going to use that anymore. And they, but I think, and again, I think, it's certain environments that you use those words in. I'd never dream, right, of using those words in an environment where um, that people can sort of feel like they have the right to use it with me as well. I think it's like anything, you know, if somebody doesn't know you and they come along and say, oh, God, you talk a lot, right? You'd be like, you don't know me, but if someone's <laughs> known you for like four or five years, or or is your colleague who sits at desk over and a few months into the job or whatever after that conversation, they say, do "You know what? You like you do talk a lot." You go, "Oh yeah, I do. I know I do." Kind of thing. It's a similar thing in that sense as well. Like me, me and Liz and the team we were with, we always have debates about this because in the beginning. Right, with particularly with Liz, um, I was very much like professional and that's it kind of thing. And then it was only after we started having these conversations and discussions that I realised actually, like, we, it's important to have these debates, right, about words and about context and about um, different people and share those ideas, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, before we uh, wrap up Adil thank you so much for sharing all of that with us um, would you mind giving perhaps some advice or a top tip for organisations who are looking to become more disability aware or somewhere you can signpost them to yeah so um, plug my own uh, the organisation <laughs> yeah. I work with uh, no so the ability people um, we're always there right and we're, we're happy to support any any organisation so have a reach out to us. Um, you know, you can email any one of us if you go on our website, our meet the team page emails are all there. There's mm-hmm. lots of other societies and organizations. Um, I mean, you know, when you think about disability, any disability you can think of probably in the UK has some sort of organizational foundation attached to it. Mm-hmm. So reach out to them, right? They'll offer a lot of training and support. We do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in terms of top tip, um, again, goes back to the point around being open and authentic. If you're open and honest, then actually, if you don't know what you're doing and someone comes to your workplace, right, who, who has a disability and they want a job and they go through your process and actually they're, they're a good candidate and you want to put them on, but you're worried how you're going to deal with this, tell them, say, look, I want to bring you on. I'll be honest and upfront with you. We don't know what we're doing, but we're willing to work together with you and go on this journey together and we'll get somewhere, right? You know, that's our promise to you is we're not going to um, give up until we find um, a solution because we want to work with you, right? And that goes back to the idea of investing in the person, yeah. right? So invest some time and energy into that individual. And that individual will invest time and energy for you as well, right? Mm. And who knows, could be the beginning of a relationship which helps you 
change the whole culture of your organization, right, with regards to DNI and helps you, you know, become the best at what you do, right? Who knows? So mm. I think being open and authentic, be honest about what you don't know and what you do know. Wow. Well, you know, it has been truly a learning experience mm. and also, you know, more than you know, some of the other conversations we've had, to be very honest with you, there's something really, I don't know, uh, soulful about the conversation we've had as well, because I think these are important issues uh, to to discuss. And I've really appreciated your transparency and your openness as well, both from your personal point of view, but as well as, you know, talking about what organisations can do. No, awesome. Thank you. Nice. No, it's been it's been a honor and thank you for having me. <laughs> and uh yeah. yeah. Thanks. Cool.